Good morning, everyone. Having a great day? Yes. So we are in this series about church jargon, and I'd like to introduce you to a gentleman by the name of Les Emerson. Does that name ring a bell for anybody? Les Emerson? No? Um, He happens to be a songwriter. And depending on your age or what age you'd like to admit, I imagine you have heard this song. And no, I'm not going to sing it. I'm just going to recite this and see if you do not try and sing along. He wrote the song, sign, sign, everywhere a sign, blocking out the scenery, breaking my mind, do this, don't do that, can't you read the sign? Now, how, how many people know Les Emerson now? Yes! He wrote that, plus a lot of other songs that I never even heard of, but I remember this song. And I remember singing to this song going, yes, you're right, all these signs telling me to do this, do that, I can't go 55 in a 35, what is this? Stop signs, I mean, rules and signs everywhere. And I was born a natural rule breaker. I don't know about you, but when you say do or don't, I am immediately the one who doesn't or do. I I have to fight that tendency inside of my heart and my mind to go against rules. And there is no place in the world more about rules than some churches. Some churches would look this morning and say, is that really a pastor up there? Because he's wearing not only jeans, but he's also wearing what? A t-shirt on a Sunday morning? Now, band members can get away with that because band members are, you know, a little awkward and artsy and kind of, we allow band members to be different. But the pastor, he's supposed to be the one leading by example. And that means suit and tie preaching out of the King James Version without ever really raising his voice or telling a joke that's really belly laughing. It's got to be serious. We're in God's house. No smiling. But in our message today on church jargon and language that we throw around, we are going to look at this idea of law and commandments. Because Law and commandments in and of themselves, as God reveals it to us in Scripture, is a good thing. It is a healthy thing. It is not just about being safe. It is about reflecting God's character because God's character is perfect and holy and righteous and unbelievably true in every way. And our lives are to reflect that purity, that holiness, that rightness, that truth, that absolute law perfection. But I do understand that churches can often misuse the word law and the word rules. Two totally different words, necessary in both of their contexts, but when we're talking about the context of a church, we are given laws by God. Rules tend to be man-made. And every house can have its own house rules. My house rule, not that I really have to ever exercise it, but maybe uh, when the kids were young, bedtime was 8 o'clock. 
Maybe in your house it was 10 o'clock. Maybe in your house it was 7 o'clock. Well, which one is right? Well, it really doesn't matter which one was right. It's, it's a house rule. And those can be changed and navigated, and they can be challenged in a right, good way. But a law, God's law, we can't challenge it. We can't attack it. We can't negotiate with him and saying, I think it's a little unfair it's like this or like that. Or I'm just going to ignore it outright and rebel against it because everybody else is too. No one else is keeping those Ten Commandments. Maybe a few. We're not murdering. I get it. But all the rest, swearing, all the rest, envy, coveting, jealousy, stealing every now and again, lying every now and again, taking the name's Lord, the Lord's name in vain every now and again, no big deal. But there is a vast difference between house rules that we might have and rules that we might establish as a country and call them laws. And what God communicates is a law and a commandment. And too often churches get slammed, whether rightly or wrongly, for being a place of rules and laws. And I remember, I, I get phone calls all the time from people who want to visit, and they'll ask a question like, well, what do people wear? And my mind, I understand it, but it hurts me. What have their past experiences been in a church where they think what they wear matters to God? It might matter to the person sitting next to them, but does it matter to God? No. But laws matter to God. And so we're going to look at what does Scripture say about laws. And the first thing that we need to think about is that when we use the word law and commandment, oftentimes it does refer to the wholeness of Scripture. This is called the book of law, or God's commandment for how we are to relate with him. And so sometimes Scripture or the Word or the Word of God is used interchangeably throughout the Bible and in preaching to mean law, being this is what God has given us to direct how we live according to his word, how we live towards one another, and how we live towards him. It can be a singular statement, thou shalt not kill, but it also can refer to the whole statement of God. So when we say we're not about law, that's not really true. We're all about law in its right understanding. And that's what we're going to look at this morning, the right understanding of law and commandments in God's Word and how it applies to us in the church. And it's my hope at the end of this, if you get anything out of this, I want the last concluding thought in your mind to be, Tim, I can't possibly deal with all these laws. I can't possibly live like that. I can't possibly obey all that. I can't keep straight all Ten Commandments, let alone hundreds. I can't do it. That's where I want you to be. I want you to be at a place where you give up and say, I can't do it. Now, that doesn't mean we don't strive. God says, be holy for I'm holy, and there's only way, one way towards holiness. That's obedience. We're called to be obedient. We're called to be law followers and example it. But you're not going to be able to do it. You're not going to be able to do the first commandment or the tenth or the hundredth. You can't. And that is a 
good, healthy, right place to be when you give up and say, I can't follow it. It's a good place to be. We're going to start by looking in Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8, and these are a couple verses. We're going to get to the meat of the verses in a minute, but these are just some contextual verses to help us understand this. Now, Joshua is writing right after the Exodus, so right after Moses died on Mount Tabor. It says in Joshua chapter 1, verse 8, this book of the law, referring to all of God's word up to that point, not just the Ten Commandments, but all of God's word, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your ways prosperous, and then you will have good success. Right at the very beginning of God's people entering into the promised land that God promised to Abraham hundreds of years earlier, Joshua repeats what they have been hearing throughout their entire lives. God reveals himself to us through his word, and his word needs to be part of your daily life. That's the whole point of the verse. God's word needs to be part of your daily life. Doesn't mean you need to read a chapter a day or five chapters a day. Doesn't mean you have to memorize scripture. It just means it has to be part of your life every single day. Let it be part of your speech. Let it be part of your conversation with others, not quoting them to condemn them, but maybe quoting it to encourage them and challenge them. But constantly, God's Word should be influencing you. There is something influencing you every day. Every moment that you are awake, something is influencing you. It might be a job. It might be a relationship. It might be money or the lack of money. It might be worries and fears. It may be joy and happiness. Something is influencing you. It could be media, or it could just be a small voice in your head. But something is influencing you. And Joshua says, to be that person that God has called you to be, in all of its fullness, in all of its goodness, in all of its glory, to be successful at life, maybe not successful at your job, but successful at life, living, meditating upon God's Word, having it part of your daily life is essential. Not optional, it's essential. Later on in the book of Luke, Luke 24, Jesus said, He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Oftentimes in Scripture, the whole Bible is referred to as the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Just as a summary, instead of saying the word Holy Bible, it's just all of God's Word is considered the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And the law of Moses is contained in the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Sometimes it's called the Pentateuch, which is just Latin for the five books of the law, or the law of Moses. So the word law really refers to a lot of different things, particularly and as a big group oftentimes. Prophets simply means 
all the books that are not the first five in the book of Psalms. So Ecclesiastes, even Proverbs, uh, all the books that we, um, we look through the book of Judges, that's considered a book of prophets. Even though it's a history book, it's declaring God's word, and so it's considered part of the books of the prophets. Now, you can actually turn with me to Matthew chapter 22, because we're also going to talk about another law, another commandment, and kind of distill it for us, kind of summarize it for us. And it's in Matthew chapter 22, starting in verse 30. We're going to start in verse 34 and give us some context there. But when the Pharisees heard that, he silenced the Sanhedrins. He's talking about resurrections and not. And so he's having a discussion with the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, uh, the Sadducees, religious leaders of Israel. And he kind of concludes this with this little interaction. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, that is a Pharisee now, asked him a question to test him. Not asking him a question to find out some spiritual nugget of how to grow close to God or how to love others or how to serve others or how to be a generous person, but the question was asked to trick him. To trick him. How do you think that's going to go? Even if you don't know the rest of the story, everything you know about Jesus, how's it going to go trying to trick him with a question? I remember asking, uh, whew, I remember asking a question. Uh, I grew up Lutheran, and so in seventh and eighth grade, we had confirmation class. And I remember in class raising my hand in front of the pastor. And he goes, Tim, you have a question? I said, yes, I have a question. And you can imagine what kind of question I asked, right? Uh, I said, um, can God make a boulder so big he can't lift it? And I saw this really puzzled look on his face. And I said, well, okay, let me, let me say it this way. How many angels can dance on the head of a pin? If you ever saw a man turn red in anger, this was the poster child for turning red in anger. Grabbed me by the collar of my shirt, dragged me off to the hall, sat me down, called my mom, who was a secretary at the school, so she was in the office right adjacent to my classroom, and began to absolutely berate me because I had made him look foolish in front of the class. So I know how it went for me when I asked a question to kind of trick him. Now, I have answers to those two questions if you want to ask me sometime. I won't get angry, won't get mad, won't get upset. Just don't do it now, but I'll, I'll, we'll talk about it later, maybe over pizza for lunch. So, this lawyer comes up to Jesus to test him, and verse 36 says, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? So he's asking a very general question. If you look at this entire scripture, which would have been the Old Testament, not the New Testament at this point, What's the greatest law in all the commandments? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Everything you want to know about pleasing God and living with one another is found in those commandments. Loving God with everything you are. 
and loving one another more than you love yourself. Love. I imagine that Pharisee was looking for, out of the top ten, what is the number one? Top ten commandments, which is the number one? Or is it one that's not even in the top ten? Jesus looks at that testing question to trick him because the Pharisees were not a unified group of people. The Pharisees were very divided between liberal and conservative and strict and not strict. And so some of them had one law that they looked at real importantly and others had other laws that they looked at. So they were all divided based on all these laws that they found in Scripture and created themselves. Created tons of rules. And so they wanted to know, Jesus, what side are you on? Are you on the side of the Sadducees? Are you on the side of the Pharisees? And which sect within the Pharisees are you part of? And Jesus hits straight to the matter. It's not which one do you follow. You need to follow these two. Now the guy asked, which is the greatest? And Jesus answers, with two. You can't pigeonhole God when it comes to what does he expect in your life. Oh, on Sunday I can be a good Christian, but the rest of the time God doesn't pigeonhole me into anything. No, he does. He faces us every single day with what is right and good and what is our response to it. So you can't pigeonhole God to say, okay, what's the one thing you want me to do in life? It's not one thing. It's actually two. Love him with everything you are and love others with the same attention you give, your, the same attention you give yourself. Now, in the book of Romans, which we saw last week, uh, and we looked at the book of Romans in order to see the Trinity on full display. And I hope that you gained some incredibly good insight and some better understanding of why the Trinity is what we believe and why the Trinity is necessary, essential, and understandable, that we all can grab an understanding of the Trinity even though logically it may seem difficult. So hopefully last week from the book of Romans, you became crystal clear on what is the Trinity and why it is essential in our Christian life. The same is true about law and commandments. The book of Romans gives us an incredible understanding of the law. It says in Romans chapter 3, and um, I'm going to read kind of a large pa passage from verse 9 all the way through verse 20, and we're going to stop along the way and see how God is revealing himself through law. Now, this is Paul in this kind of discussion he's having with the church at Rome, uh, the small little church at Rome at the time. And so he says in verse 9, what then are Jews any better off? Because they had the law revealed to them. Okay? The Jews did have the law revealed to them. Mind-blowing newsflash. Jesus was Jewish. He did not have blonde hair or blue eyes. I guarantee you he didn't. I guarantee you he doesn't look like any picture you've ever seen of him because I know exactly what he looked like. In Isaiah, it tells us he had no stately form or majesty. He did not look like a model. He looked like a typical, average, run-of-the-mill, everyday Jewish boy. That was it. No blonde hair, no flowing in the wind kind of breeze, no nice cut beard. He would have looked just like every other Jew at the time. 
100% Jewish. Didn't look like a white hippie at all. Well, I'm sorry, most of the pictures kind of dis- display him like that, and I'm like, where are they getting that from? Because he didn't look anything like that. Definitely a dark olive complexion, <laughs> not white. Okay, so, uh, but the law was given to the Jews first and foremost. So the Jews had the law. They almost had a head start on understanding loving God and loving others. And so Paul is bringing this into our relationship with him based on Judaism that, hey, Judaism does not have, um, uh, it may have the beginnings of this understanding, but it doesn't have, um, uh, it's, you don't have to be Jewish to have an understanding of God and relate to him through Jesus Christ. And so are the Jews better off? Paul says, no, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jew and Greeks, are under sin. So we have something in common with all of those people who got the law before us, that we're all under sin. And now he goes on for the next several verses to discuss the nature of what that sin looks like as the law reveals it. He says, there are none righteous. No, not one. So if you think you're the exception, that you live a pretty good life and you should be acknowledged for that good life, Paul says, no, 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 no. There's none righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And before you say, well, but what about No, no, no. These words are crystal clear. No one, no one is born to love and serve God. They are born under sin and are sinners by nature. And that is not a popular message, and that is not a comforting message. That should be a message of Oh, no. What in the world is going to happen to me? Not even one. And then Paul, all quoting Scripture, describes for us, their throat is an open grave, and use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is in under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now Paul begins to apply that. It's quite damning, the nature of mankind. Left to themselves, this is exactly who they are without God entering into their lives, without the message of the cross, without the resurrection being their hope and comfort. This is their life. Misery, sin, absolute terror at the moment they die because they have no clue what's happening. Paul says in verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped 
and the whole world may be held accountable to God. I hate to do this to you. Well, really, I don't. I like doing this. You shall have no other gods before Yahweh. You shall not make any graven image. You shall not take his name in vain. You shall honor the Sabbath day and make it a day of religious worship and service. You shall honor your father and mother. You shall not kill. And Jesus defines that for us. You shall not hate in your heart. You shall not commit adultery. Do not lust in your heart after another person. You shall not steal, which means do not take five minutes of your employer's time and count it as work when you're talking and having fun and doing something for yourself, checking your social media or your email on your own time but having your employer pay for it. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbor. Don't slander, don't lie, don't misrepresent, don't tell the large fish story over and over again, it getting bigger and bigger. Don't do that. And do not covet. Do not envy what someone else has. Do not wish and want what someone else has. Live with contentment with what God has given you. Don't desire more than what God has given you. But appreciate it and thank him for it. Even if it's rice again for dinner, thank him for it. I have just told you, in summary, all Ten Commandments, probably in order, I'm pretty sure, you are now left without excuse you know the law. You know what God expects of you. You are included now in verse 19 of Romans chapter 3, which says, We now know that whatever the law speaks, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that Every mouth, everyone who was at Calvary Church in Pueblo on Sunday, September 19th, 2021, now can no longer say, I'm not accountable to God. You are all accountable to God and his law. And then Paul says in verse 20, for by the works of the law, all those commandments and laws that I just mentioned, no human being will be justified in his sight, which means no one will be blameless. No one can say, I'm without fault or blame. I'm perfect. You see, God never says anywhere in Scripture, judge yourself according to the person next to you. Never. Never says judge yourself according to anyone else. Well, that's not true. We are to judge ourselves according to another person, just not the person sitting next to you, to Jesus. 
Jesus. And I guarantee that everyone who has ever walked this path of this world besides Jesus fails at living perfectly in reference to him. No one does. I don't, you don't, your mother, your most saintly grandmother never did. Only Jesus. No one can live a perfect life and be justified before God. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. We are all coveting. We all have anger and hatred, and it makes us murderers. We all have stolen. It makes us thieves. We all have coveted. We've violated God's commandment. We have all put something before God, and we're idolaters. Each and every one of us. You see, the law pinpoints for us how we have sinned. The law just doesn't simply give us safeguards to say don't murder because murder's bad. It shows us that without restraint, we would murder physically. We would live as if there is no law. Loving God and loving others would be far from us. See, the law just is not a sign saying don't do this, don't do that. The law reveals our character. And when our character is revealed, it's not all roses. It's sickening. It's disappointing. It's... Well, you see how Paul quoted those scriptures? It's like an open grave full of deception, venom, curses, bitterness, bloodshed, ruin, misery, no peace, no fear of God. A person that lives like that with the knowledge of law is miserable. In Matthew chapter 5, to take home. And what in the world can we take home after this? In Matthew chapter 5, part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus answers a really important question here. It says in verse 17 of Matthew chapter 5, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. You see, there are some, even within a Christian circle, that think Jesus' entire role was to remove the law from us. We are no longer under law, we're under grace. And yes, I know exactly what that principle is being taught by Paul, I understand it. But Jesus is putting a nice correction to it, that we're not lawless, but he's come to fulfill it. How well have you fulfilled the law? You haven't. How well have I fulfilled the law? I haven't. And if God says that my relationship with you is based on the fulfillment of the law, we're doomed in and of ourselves. But Jesus says, I've come to fulfill it. 
I've come to live it. I've come to make it mine. I've come to do its burden and its joy. It all rests on his shoulders. All the obedience. He not only obeyed all ten commandments, he obeyed the big two. Loving God and loving others to the point where he gave his life selfishly, selflessly, selflessly upon the cross for people as Paul described in Romans 3, just full of misery, full of misery and pain. He's come to fulfill the law, not to abolish it, but to fulfill it. For truly, he says, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, an iota and a dot are basically the dot above an I and the cross of a T. So Jesus is saying, I not only love the law and fulfill it, but every bit of it. I'm not going to skirt it. I'm not going to give excuses why I'm not going to fulfill that law and not that one. All of it is important and all of it is going to be obeyed by Jesus perfectly. We don't know what that's like because we do the opposite. We disobey perfectly. Whereas Christ obeys perfectly. Do you begin to see hope? Do you begin to see the light at the end of the tunnel that all of this burden of laws and commandments Jesus takes upon himself and says, you come to me if you are weary, if you are overburdened, if the demands of the law are too much for you to bear, I have fulfilled it for you. And all of a sudden, all the talk about law, the law hasn't gone away. The law hasn't become unapplicable. It still applies to us. But its obedience and burden of perfection is taken from our shoulders. And Christ lifts it and bears it on our behalf. All of it. The big two, the big ten, the big 99, how many there are. He fulfills all of it. I, I can't think of, of, of a greater sigh of relief than knowing that Christ bears all the law on your behalf. I know life is filled with untold burdens. Each burden that you have is, is greater than the person next to you. I know the stress you are under. I know the pains that you see. I know the anguish that you are witnessing in this world. I know that. But in light of all of that outside pressure, there is a greater pressure, and that is absolute obedience of the law to be justified, to be made right with God. And none of us can bear that. You see, we for a time can bear this administration or that administration or this path or that path, that job or that job. We can deal with that because we know one day it will go away. But the burden of the law passes from this life to the next. And Jesus said, I'll do it for you. I'll do it for you. Who wouldn't want to take advantage of that? Who wouldn't want to say, yes, Jesus, bear the law on my behalf. Do it for me. Who wouldn't? The arrogant. The one who says, you know what, I'm still better than you. 
That's never been the question. You may be better than me, but you're never better than perfection. You're not at perfection level. And Jesus says, I've come to fulfill it. Do you want the fulfillment of loving God and loving others? Jesus says, I've done it for you. Will you believe and accept? Because the requirement of the law and the commandments is never going away. It's always present. He continues and says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments or changes it or makes it easier on them, Jesus says, and teaches others to do the same, will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, I thought you just said you came to fulfill the law because we can't, and now you're telling us to fulfill it. He's not double-speaking. He's not contradicting himself. He's telling you now you have a clearer understanding that fulfilling the obedience to the law is now a joy and a habit of his people. It identifies you as striving towards holiness and righteousness, not to get into heaven, but to demonstrate you are part of the heavenly kingdom. And so to diminish commandments and laws to say they have no bearing on us whatsoever, commandments and laws, those things that God has given us, not man's rules, but God's commandments, to diminish them and to not care about them is striking at the heart of how to live the Christian life. Jesus says you still need to look at loving God and loving others, not murdering, not stealing, not coveting, not making idols, making the Sabbath day a religious day for me. He says, you can't dismiss that and say, you know what, Jesus took care of it, I don't have to do it. I can live any way I want to now. Paul says that is an unbelievable thought to have in Romans chapters 6, 7, and 8. He says, you can't think that way. It should give you a freedom to love the law, not to dismiss it and reject it. And then he ends in verse 20, and this is where we end today. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. How righteous do you think the Pharisees were? How attentive to God's law do you think the Pharisees were? Very attentive to God's law. In fact, to be a Pharisee, you had to memorize the first five books. You had to memorize not just the Ten Commandments, but you had to memorize Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And guess what? They had to memorize it in Hebrew. Well, of course they had to memorize it in Hebrew. They were Jewish. They didn't have English then. Probably it's easier in English. They knew the law. They knew exactly where to find every commandment, every requirement. They knew every little wiggle room there was to find in the law. They were experts at living perfectly in front of others. When it was time for a group to pray, every Pharisee raised their hand, I'll pray. They outdid themselves to pray. They outdid themselves to tithe. They outdid themselves to evangelize. They were amazing evangelists for the Jewish faith. Not for God, but for the Jewish faith. In fact, there are stories in the book of Josephus that shows groups of Pharisees going out onto the mission field and evangelizing the Gentiles to bring them to Judaism. They were firm believers in evangelism. 
caring for the needy, they cared for the needy. The problem is they did that all to make themselves look good, to be able to say, I am better than that tax collector. Jesus levels the playing field. Because my righteousness cannot be greater than the Pharisees, but I do know whose righteousness can be. That is Jesus. And unless we have his righteousness at ours, as ours, we will live by rules and commandments and judge others. And it will be a life of misery. We are meant for far greater things than that. And as the band comes up and we close in our last song, let this song be an anthem for you, reminding you of all that Christ has done on your behalf, that you live in his righteousness, not your own, that laws and commandments, while we follow them, they don't define us as being holy by our own obedience. It is by the obedience of Christ and him alone. Let's stand and sing.